my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Class is in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. Lynn, uh, I have so much to talk to you about. There's so much going on in the world, and I have some interesting things that I want to uh, take us into. Uh, but anyway, just uh, thanks for joining me today. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, so um, a lot of stuff going on in the world, and, and you've been tweeting about a lot of different things, and uh, I think you've been sort of recognized in the industry as um, thinking a little bit differently about things. Uh, it's probably your engineering background that you have. But I want to start on some big macro topics, and then we'll take this down into a couple different uh, rabbit holes that people maybe haven't really heard us discuss before. But let's sort of start with like this big, broad macro picture. I like to think of things uh, in politics, finance, and technology, and really where these three things converge because it gives better context. So I want to get into some of those topics, more of the technology stuff. But if we start with just like this macro picture, I've seen you talking about quite a bit how we're sort of going into this period of fiscal dominance. And so um, I recently did a video talking about how really the central bank interactions in the market have really changed since 2008. Um, They've been much more involved and really been uh, more proactive instead of as reactive as they were. And uh, so we can talk about this fiscal dominance. But what I kind of want to talk about is a lot of assumptions that it seems like we've had about the markets have really been challenged in the last year or two since the Fed's gone on this tightening cycle. And so a lot of things, maybe biases or just uh, historical assumptions that people make, such as, um, well, when the risk-free rate goes up, the stocks have to be repriced down, but they haven't been. Uh, when, rates, when mortgage rates go up so high, home prices have to come down, but they haven't been. So it seems like a lot of assumptions have been challenged here. Um, and so I guess the bigger question is, if we're in this period where the Fed is fiscal dominance, they're really driving markets, we're seeing assumptions being challenged, 
then the big challenge is, do the markets have to crash? Uh, so it's a good question. My base case has been range-bound for a lot of different uh, assets, which, which basically points towards not very good real returns over, say, a five-plus-year period, uh, but not necessarily expecting a, a crash either. So I've neither been a, kind of a you know melt-up bull or a deflationary crash bear. I, I've been more in that range-bound camp. Uh, which so far has has been working out both in the housing market uh, in aggregate and the, the stock market in aggregate. Uh, obviously, there are very different industries that can be up or down. There are very different geographies that can be up or down. Um, but overall, that's kind of the general path we've been on. And if we look back historically, I, I kind of classify the long-term debt cycle, um, Ray Dalio's work, for example, and then additional work I put into it to kind of really flesh out and explore this concept. I know you've covered it uh, quite a bit as well. It's basically the observation that um, you go through a number of normal business cycles, but you build up instability in the system uh, a couple different ways, including on the public debt side. And so if we, if we characterize the past 40 years, we had ever-rising public debt. So whenever um, we had a recession, we would have uh, you know industries get cut. Uh, that allows uh, higher debt levels, and you get – you know lower lows and lower highs in interest rates and higher highs and higher lows in, in both private sector and public sector debts as a percentage of GDP. And that coincided with basically the, the peace dividend, the, op- the opening up of the world. You know, China opened up to the world in the 1980s. Soviet Union fell in the early 90s. And so we, we kind of entered this more connected world for a period of time. And we basically brought Western capital together with Eastern labor and resources. And that was a very kind of productive disinflationary time some people were hurt by it but a lot of people were helped by it and that that's kind of been the era we've been in and that allowed for lower interest rates and when you look at the government expenditure if you have higher and higher debt to gdp but lower and lower interest rates your overall interest expense remains manageable um and when we had the global financial crisis, a lot of things changed there. We had a bank recapitalization. We hit the peak in terms of private debt relative to GDP, but we pushed a lot of that debt onto the public sector uh, in multiple countries, especially the United States. And so when we look back at prior long-term debt cycles, they do tend to come in a one-two punch. First, you have the private debt bubble uh, kind of break apart, which is disinflationary. Um, but then the second stage is when all that gets pushed up to the public sector and then that becomes more of an inflationary type of crisis. Um, so kind of ever since the, the past, call it three, four years, we've been in that second phase of the bubble. Um, and so I think that's one of the best ways to look at it from a historical lens. But then, of course, you have to think, okay, what is different now in terms of culture, in terms of technology, in terms of just the way the world looks? What you know, What is different, even though that's a useful baseline? And it's, you know, these types of periods are always weird. And so there's going to be challenging things to navigate that you didn't necessarily expect, um, which is why it's useful to have a framework, but to also be very flexible with your thinking to see what sort of curveballs might or may not come, and then you know adjust that over time based on what's happening. So then if, to recap, so your base case isn't a big crash. It's sort of just chopping along sideways this crab market, if you will, I think is, is kind of what you said. Um, two... 
very similar. You've been talking about a lot, and I think it's very helpful to kind of look at sort of what we saw in the 30s and 40s as a better sort of uh, proxy or representation of what we're where we're at today, as opposed to like the 70s era. Um, however, what you're saying is that we need to remain flexible. So it's good to have some sort of like uh, models that we can view the world through, but be flexible because who knows. Right. <laughs> if I frame that up right. Yeah. And as an example, um, you know, back in early 2022, when it became clear that the Fed was going to be quite hawkish, um, uh, that was, you know, my expectation was we'd have a recession by kind of later in the year um, and that it'd be tough to get interest rates over three percent before you'd have kind of those types of problems. And for the most of 2022, that was correct. We had s- slowing economic indicators. Um, we had two quarters of negative real GDP growth, even though they weren't technically a recession because they didn't have like an unemployment spike and stuff. But we had a period of softness. Asset prices had a pretty bad time across the board. Um, and But then by early 2023, uh, I started to see signs that it was playing out differently. Um, that basically the fiscal deficits, ironically from part of that f- the monetary tightening, so the higher interest expense from the federal deficits, were starting to actually kind of balance themselves out. They were becoming kind of inflationary and stimulatory. Um, and then when you had the, the kind of the mini banking crisis and the Fed's willingness to re-inject some liquidity in there to stop contagion, these things really kind of added up uh, to a, a shift in how I viewed things. So it was, you know, that, that's an example of being flexible where you have a view, it starts playing out, uh, but then after a certain point, it kind of starts being a little different. It's almost like if you're very tired and you stay up all night and you just kind of force yourself through it, eventually you almost get like another burst of being awake again, right? That, that's, and that's kind of what we saw in markets where they got so tight on the on the fiscal side and the, and the monetary side that we kind of went past the looking glass uh, towards actually being somewhat stimulatory because a lot of the private sector debt is low and, and fixed rate, especially in the, in the household sector and in the investment grade corporate sector. So those industries have held up pretty well, whereas a lot of the U.S. federal debt is short term. And so that's been refinanced at, at much higher rates. And so this, the, the, we have like two very powerful competing forces here. One is that the interest rates are putting downward pressure on a number of interest rate sensitive industries, you know, commercial real estate and small businesses and junk rated companies and the like. But on the other hand, that interest expense is just completely blowing out the deficit which is uh, on its own, it's a stimulatory inflationary force. And in the past year or so, they've been roughly balanced. Yeah. I think maybe it was Joseph Wang or somebody said it was something like, uh, I'm so bearish, I'm bullish kind of a thing, right? So it's like things are so bad, it's actually sort of bullish. It's stimulatory to your point. And so we're starting to see more and more of the spending being from the government and this deficit spending. And so uh, you've talked about extensively how um, as things continue to get worse, that deficit spending goes up. And that's really the sort of main driver of a lot of this inflation that we have, I guess, is sort of the point that you're sort of making. Now, you have... What I, I was kind of saying earlier in the intro, sort of like uh, I, I charted out sort of the the change in central bank policy sort of from 2008. And so, like, for example, in uh, 2006, the housing market had started to crash. The housing starts went down by 26 percent. But yet it took 30 months before the Fed did anything in the markets. From the time Bear Stearns went bankrupt, it was seven months before they even got a package. It was $100 billion or $100 million that they, uh, they, had, they had ready to go. Or no, sorry, it was $100 billion. But in 2023, when the banks went bankrupt, it was six days. 
So uh, we kind of see the difference. In, in 2020, the Fed set up, I think it was 13 different special funding facilities, three, four-letter agencies. And again, you know, the BTFP was set up in like six days. So it shows, at least it looks like to me, that they're much more uh, proactive. Um, now they've gone around and set up all these swap lines, not just with friendly countries, but now even, uh, you know, what maybe tier two central banks, et cetera. So it seems like their fingers on the trigger and they're ready to go. And so... You know, if you understand that we're in this debt-based monetary system and the debt is the asset, it's the collateral on more debt, they have to keep that system from unraveling. But then you might have somebody like a Jeff Snyder uh, who says, well, but really the Fed has no control because it's really the euro-dollar market overall. So are they able to sort of have this dominance where they can continue to keep these things elevated with these special funding facilities and these swap lines um, and the fiscal side can continue to spend? Or are we sort of like in this period where maybe there's this out-of-control beast that we can't control? So there's been this narrative for several years that they can't create inflation, that that the markets are too deflationary for them to do it. And I I wrote an article back in 2019 where I I said, are are bonds in a bubble or is this a new normal? And the conclusion of the article was it is a bubble. Um, And I talked about how – I was like, look, a lot of things look disinflationary, um, but – if, if in the next downturn, central banks, uh, you know, they can completely change the rules and they can work with fiscal authorities and just have massive monetized fiscal deficits. It was almost eerie. You know, I didn't talk about a pandemic in that article, but it's almost eerie what happened less than a year after that article came out. It was just completely, like, you know, completely the, the rules were changed. Um, and that's what we've seen. And, and the reason I, I had that view is because that's when you get towards a sovereign debt kind of cycle nearing its, its sort of completion. Uh, and a, a completion can take a decade. It doesn't mean a completion like this six months. I mean like this era. Um, right. The rules change. The cycles get tighter. Uh, similarly, during March 2020, I wrote an article called Why This Isn't Like the Great Depression. Uh, and that was like just in the early signs of seeing some of these stimulus. Um, and so my view was, no, no, this is not going to be disinflationary. Uh, this is likely going to be inflationary because the cavalry's response time is quicker and because – it's more like the 40s, not like the uh, 30s. So I would, I would consider the 2008 crisis to be very similar to the 1929 crisis. That was at all the hallmarks of a private debt bubble unwinding. Uh, but I think we're past that now. I think now we're towards the sovereign debt bubble. And the closer you get to the sovereign, um, the, the, the quicker the uh, trigger finger is to come in with any sort of thing because it starts to potentially make the treasury market get illiquid. So if you look last year, during the um, 2022 gilt market blow-up, right? So it's like September of, of last year, the UK gilt market blew up and the Bank of England had to come in and do emergency QE for a number of weeks, uh, even though they had 10% inflation at the time. And they had to cancel a speech about balance sheet reduction they were going to have the next day uh, because you literally had a vicious cycle of more bond selling. And at the same time, the US Treasury market was like one step behind. It was like very illiquid. Bond auctions were not going well. It was looking very wobbly. And he started to see the Treasury offset the Fed. So even though the Fed was still being somewhat tight, the Treasury started drawing down its Treasury general account and taking other measures. That was kind of the the part of the reversal. Uh, So basically, my view is that when push comes to shove and when it gets closer to the sovereign, uh, inflationary forces can always be used to, to override uh, the various debt-driven, disinflationary-driven forces in the economy. And so I, I will generally always err towards that inflationary outcome 
while risk managing it along the way and, and basically having a realistic realistic time frame and diversification. Yeah. Um, yes. You know, something that I was thinking about in regards to that, too, is like, sure. Uh, so maybe the Fed doesn't have total control, but sure, to your point, the fiscal, the, the government could do that spending or, or increase that. And so a couple of things. So like you mentioned some of these things that are more interest rate sensitive, sort of like the commercial real estate uh, market, uh, specifically the mortgage bond market in the real estate sectors. $2.9 trillion of, of debt that could potentially blow up. And if people look at that as like this big, you know, maybe not a black swan, but a gray swan that could uh, sink things. But like the Fed could just take all that under their books. They've done that before. Like, why wouldn't they? Right? So there, when you go through a lot of these things, at least for me, I'm like, okay, sure, that's bad. But like we've seen before that they could just take that on their books and just sort of put that over on the side. So when you start looking at these things, also we saw uh, I think some of the banks in Europe were guaranteeing banks loans. So banks don't want to loan money out because they're afraid that, you know, the market's, uh, you know, shaky, there's a recession there. So the banks don't want to loan the money out, but the government just says, Hey, we'll just backstop your loans. Like, go ahead. And so then the banks will, of course, will loan if there's no risk. So there's lots of things, uh, I guess, when I look at some of these people that I've been studying for a long time, like Harry Dent Jr., I've probably read five of his books. I love his research. I think his research is correct. Um, but trying to continue to time when this crash is going to happen has obviously failed for him. And I think a lot of it is we just continue to fail how many more tricks they have up their sleeve. Would yeah, you say that's and, probably right? And when they change the unit of account, it's like changing the rules. It's a like Kobayashi Maru, right? You just change the rules of the test is basically yeah. what they do. Um, and so – you know, a, a country that controls its own unit of account is is when push comes to shove, they print. Um, and I'd be careful. To, that doesn't mean fully risk on because, for example, you know, the Fed right now under Jerome Powell, his legacy is on the line. He is serious about tightening. Um, and it's one of those things where he doesn't, you know, if the stock market drops 20 percent, he's not going to care. Uh, if, if credit markets have problems, if there's a big cycle of commercial real estate uh, bankruptcy, he's not going to care. Um, if anything, they're good. That he that's like things he'd probably like to see. Uh, the the markets where they jump in quickly are bank contagion, um, anything adjacent to that, like uh, repo spikes, like they did in 2019, or the treasury market itself. Right? Those are the, those yeah. are the, the cores of the system that I, I you know that they're very unlikely to let um, struggle for long periods of time. Whereas almost anything else, uh, you do have to be quite careful of. And that's part of why I don't expect. And for a while, I have not expected um, good stock uh, or, or broad real estate returns, especially on a real basis. You know, when you're comparing that to CPI or when you're comparing that to what you can get on a T-bill um, and things like that, uh, the the overall risk of those markets remains pretty high. Uh, but, you know, another way of looking at it is you mentioned $2.9 trillion in, in debt. Um, but it's like we have 1.7 trillion in annual fiscal deficits, right? It's like there's a fire hose of deficits going into the market. So you can have trillion dollar bankruptcies that are kind of offset by trillion dollar just ongoing fiscal injections. And so even right. if the Fed doesn't come to the rescue there, it's just that one industry is suffering, uh, you know, arguably right sizing. I mean, commercial real estate does have to go through a repurposing and a you know just a, a change because we've changed, our technology's changed. Our locations have changed. But on the other hand, uh, you know, I don't think you're going to see like restaurant sales go go bust because the people that go to restaurants, uh, a lot of them are on the receiving side of these very large fiscal deficits. Um, and so it's a very kind of industry by industry market. And I think the overall aggregate 
is this is kind of stagflationary range bound type of thing where it's a very some people feel like what recession I don't see a recession and other people are racking up credit card debt to get by because for them it already is a recession and it, it's just very industry specific individual specific uh, and the overall range is that kind of murky sideways action. Yeah. In 2008, I was in Southern California developing real estate. Uh, Orange County, California was like the epicenter of the mortgage industry. And we got hit really, really hard, but there was plenty of other industries that didn't really feel that recession as much. Right. So that's sort of an example. And to your point about the, about the restaurants, you know, we also have like, for example, the baby boomers sitting on tens of trillions yeah. of dollars worth of wealth and they're like they're gonna die so like i might as well go spend my money so they're not really as sensitive to those things and so there's a lot of uh, plays here uh, or a lot of things in play i guess to kind of wrap this up um back to so one the market doesn't have to crash it doesn't have to um potentially uh the maybe shorter term maybe the next 12 months is more uncertain it seems to me the longer term is more certain uh because of the debt-based monetary system that we have, we need more inflation and most likely asset prices will be higher over the next three to five years. Maybe we don't know the next six to 12 months. That's sort of my base case. Uh, would you agree with that or no? Yeah, generally. And I think, um, you know, cr crash, it helps to define it specifically, right? So, I mean, the, the fact that we had like a 20% drawdown and then a partial retrace and then we're having like another drawdown now, you know, that's to be expected. I mean, you could have a 10, 20% move with, with not much of a problem, especially over a multi-month period or over the course of a and, year. And you might even consider that a healthy pullback yeah. after the run that we Yeah, had. I wouldn't consider that a crash. Um, and I think, I think a useful model is to look at emerging markets when they go through recessions or just in general when they're kind of in a malaise. Uh, often the stock market's not going down big in nominal currency terms um it, it's kind of it's doing bad in dollar terms um yeah. but it's usually doing fine in nominal local currency terms and i think that basically when when developed countries go through sovereign debt crises or things like we're having now it's basically like a developed market with emerging market characteristics uh and yeah. so either look you know I, I use the 1940s analog a lot um but potentially more accessible analog for people is just look at emerging markets uh, you know, not I'm not saying the absolute basket case ones, but just like the, the standard quintessential emerging market. What do their recessions look like? What are their stock markets doing in nominal terms versus, say, compared to dollars or gold or whatever? Um, and I think that there's there's some comparisons there that are instructive. So I, I would expect a, a range bound and that, that range could be pretty big um, and then not great real returns. Uh, probably, you know, we, we've had negative real returns since you know like early 2021 or like mid 2021 um and i'd expect that to continue for a number of years uh because i think that some of the more defensive assets like literally you know t-bills uh tips you know that at their positive real rates are interesting now uh, i prefer gold and bitcoin uh i prefer you know i think there's some emerging markets that are attractive if you choose them selectively there are a mix of assets out there that are interesting um but i think the ones that have been expensively crowded into um, are just unlikely to, to do good returns. And that, you know, things can correct in, in price or they can correct in time. They can just be in a range for a long time and that is eventually a, a correction. So. Right. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure, 
I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. Now, um, we have to sort of zoom out of just the macro and look at the bigger picture to sort of understand things as well. And so now um, it seems like uh, when, things, uh, when all things fail, uh, high inflation, whatever, like let's just go to war and here we are. Uh, Janet Yellen comes out and says we can fight two wars. Uh, we might have a third war shaping up. China's sending warships over to the Middle East as well right now. Um, in light of that, in light of uh, looks like potential massive military spending is, is in the cards for us in the, in the near future, at least probably for the next year, how does that change things? I mean, that's going to be massive inflationary. Does that give them a cover, potentially a cover of letting things run hot, getting that inflation they need to get that GDP up, to bring the debt to GDP down? How do you see that playing out? Yeah, I think it potentially does. And uh, a common thing you see during the sovereign debt crisis is financial repression. So various ways to kind of keep financing to the government affordable while trying to restrict private sector lending too much and trying to restrict uh, private sector capital flow. So, you know, basically various capital controls. Uh, That was a place across the developed world in the 1940s. And uh, when you see emerging markets like today, there are multiple emerging markets that have all various frictions on purpose for people that want to get their capital elsewhere. Uh, they basically add, add various hurdles to them. Uh, and so that's that's something we should expect. And But part of that has to be done with narrative, right? It's like, you know, in order to be successful, they have to have some degree of plausibility with it, which gets a lot of the public on board. And so... You know, right now we've seen, for example, there's been a lot of misinformation in the in the financial media around how much terrorists receive financing from crypto. Right, that's that's yeah. been a big thing, and it's been it's been pretty soundly debunked now. Even the sources that some of those media articles used themselves said, no, no, th- this is completely misconstrued. The numbers like less than one percent of what you said it was. Most of the financing comes from 
traditional existing financial rails. This is like a rounding error. Um, But that doesn't change the fact that there are certain senators and certain politicians that are like, look, look, we have to go after this now. This this crypto is all terrorist financing. And if you could drill that in enough people's heads, when people get scared, they think, yeah, no, we have to block this. Like uh, it's just people are not very quantitative on average and and politicians will use that uh, and just shape the narrative over and over again. Uh, And so I think that that is that's a ongoing thing. Now, luckily, the combination of social media and things like Bitcoin or stable coins do allow for more peer-to-peer transfer of information and value, which makes it a lot harder for them to do the types of financial oppression that they've done in prior cycles. Uh, but that's not guaranteed. That's something that has to be protected, fought for, edu- people educated on, uh, lies kind of called out, um, at well-evidenced. And I think that that's kind of their – basically there is a kind of cultural battle behind the scenes – and the reason I, I talk about that is because having studied the 1940s a lot and studying emerging markets today, this is actually a very common occurrence uh, during these cycles to use kind of these temporary crises for permanent restrictions or to, to kind of shift narratives around to help get people more on board with the financial oppression that they kind of mathematically get stuck into. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, uh, yeah, don't let a crisis go to waste sort of, sort of, sort of, sort of thing. And so it wasn't just the 40s. We continue to see that being the playbook. But sort of going back to what you're talking about, this financial repression. And so in order to get the debt to GDP down, they can either bring the debt down, unrealistic, or get the GDP up. So there's this financial repression where you let inflation run really hot. So GDP goes up uh, because of the inflation. Um, but the problem is then they have to kind of restrict the capital within that. And so it's, it's, uh, not politically palatable at this point to let inflation run hot, but if they could blame it on a war, oh, it's Putin's fault, <laughs> it's uh, Israel, it's Hamas's fault, whatever it may be, then we could potentially get that inflation that they want, that they need, um, and blame it on the war. That's the narrative part that you're talking about. Yeah, and, and at I, the same exactly. Yeah, they ahead. can't just say, look, our our decades of you know kind of just broad based spending and, and tax policies have contributed to a. Uh, destabilizing situation and therefore it's going to just kind of inflate on its own they definitely need an external reason right and so that any anything that they can use they're they're willing to jump on and you know in in the prior kind of couple years i think the federal reserve intended to to be slower to raise rates in response to the inflation they they kind of signaled that pretty strongly but the public reaction to that inflation was pretty you know negative pretty quickly and so they changed course pretty quickly um, and so that was not enough cover for them to, to do what they want to do, uh, but potentially a, a war is. And so I think that, you know, we'll see how this plays out. But basically, the more that they can blame inflation on an external source and then therefore also blame the need for capital controls and things like that on an external source and to drive up the fear of security, you know, uh, that's that's really what kind of captures uh, a lot mm. of people. So war is like this perfect uh, double whammy, so to speak. Not only can they get an excuse to get inflation up, but they also get an excuse to get capital controls in place at the same time, which they need both. And um, yeah, that, that's perfect. You put out a tweet and you said, uh, technology changes how humans have to interact with things. And unfortunately, it takes time and experience. And you were talking about the fall of publisher media gatekeepers is good, but it means we have to pick our media if we, if we don't want to be uninformed. And then you also said the fall of money security gatekeepers also mean we have to pick our money. So it, technology, as I, I, I say the same thing, it always changes the way the world, the world works because of how we communicate and we organize. It changes the way we organize as well. 
And so um, sort of what you're saying is this, the way that we're communicating now is much faster. Uh, we don't need a gatekeeper to get information out there anymore. Um, and that's good for us. So it's creating this sort of like ground level decentralized movement, but it's sort of the opposite of what the gatekeepers want. And so now there's multiple battles being fought. And so now sort of, and you put another tweet sort of uh, referencing the Patriot Act. Um, and so now they see maybe this disruption in these open monetary or open, let's say, communication networks. And in this, you know, just uh, in this uh, war scenario, they are using that as a way to clamp down on it. Is that what you're seeing with the Patriot Act reference? Yeah, we've been seeing that. And, and the Patriot Act was specifically, um, there was a recent FinCEN proposal um, to basically in dramatically increase the reporting requirements on various um, private types of crypto transactions um, to the point where it, it's so broadly and vaguely worded that it applies to almost everything. It's, yeah. And so it, it's basically a pretty draconian thing. And they, they cite Section 311 of the Patriot Act as part of their justification for it. So that parts of the Patriot Act are alive and well um, all these, you know, a couple decades later. Um, and and so I think that's that's kind of a challenge. And going back to the, the gatekeeper point, basically in the old model, and this was largely just technology driven, what, what the limitations we had is that if you wanted to publish a book or if you wanted to have a radio show or have a TV show – there, these were kind of gatekept. There's publishers, there were broadcasters, um, and there's a lot of cons that come with that, especially in a less free society. A couple pros are that they, you know, they filter out some of the, you know, there's some quality filter to it in a, in a healthy market. You know, it's if if the whole world's watching Walter Cronkite, they're at least on the kind of the same set of facts they're working with as they debate each other. But as that devolves into either more propaganda type of media or just more captured corporate captured media, that that kind of disintegrates and so the fact that we've that technology has made it easier to self-publish a book or easier to start your own radio show or start your own tv show that's what, literally what we're doing right now uh, these more peer-to-peer -peer interactions bring down the importance of the gatekeepers which is a net good um, but then it takes adjustment to that because you also a lot of low quality stuff enters the market and people get can get siloed into their own echo chambers right so where they they have a bubble and they only follow people that are kind of just like them. And then they end up getting shocked at certain outcomes because they, they forget that they're they're in a small bubble and that most of the world doesn't think like them. But most of the world's in their own bubbles too. Uh, and so increasingly there's people in their own little bubbles. And so I think that as we have this, this more peer-to-peer -peer world, it does take some adjustment uh, and more responsibility on our part to go out and make sure we – have a higher level of view. Like, what what is this silo thinking now? What is this silo thinking? What silos am I un unconsciously in that I might might not be questioning enough, right? So I think it, it takes more effort on the part of the person and self awareness on the part of the person to go out and actually, you know, it's kind of like eating right. You have to go out and eat healthy things on purpose, and you have to go out and and your information diet has to be somewhat diversified and somewhat, you know, just a healthy a healthy uh, thing. And when it comes to Financial gatekeepers—that's the latest one that's being brought down because, you know, Bitcoin let's let's talk about the media. Let's talk about the media gatekeepers sure. for a minute before we sure. get into the financial side because there's a whole lot to jump into on that. You you referenced Walter Cronkite, and to your point, he was sort of like the main newscaster for a long time, and 
really before internet, we had like three TV channels and like a couple of newspapers. And I remember growing up as a kid, like we all listened to the same music and we all watched the same movies, like just what it was. But uh, Walter Cronkite uh, got into trouble and there was like Cronkite Gate where he was caught sort of uh, lying or, or bringing false facts about some stories. And so then that brought down the trust that he had. And so, you know, while I guess I would, I certainly would agree with you, like, it's going to be way better if we all agree. And so if we only get one source of information, then I guess we could all agree. It's sort of the premise that that book uh, Fahrenheit 451 was written on. I don't know if you've seen that book or read that book, but uh, where they destroyed all the books. There was a, for the, for the listeners, there was a uh, massive civil war, the whole you know, world war. And so they said it was because people had different information. And so they just destroyed all the books. And then the government became the central source of truth. And then they said, hey, we'll have peace if everybody reads the same thing. Um, and so certainly the world would work better that way. But at the same time, we need to decide what is truth and not decide truth by a gatekeeper. But I think that truth is found through open, honest dialogue, right? So like, it should be, it seems like we're in this maybe transition period that's very difficult, but if we could get to a point where information is more decentralized and can be openly discussed, then we could find truth through discussion that then maybe people could tap into, as opposed to trying to have it delivered to us by a trusted party. Would I, you agree with that? I agree, and I think that takes a while, is my point, that basically as right. we enter this more decentralized world, which is which is just objectively, it's a, it's a much better thing. But we have to learn, okay, there's going to be a lot of lower quality stuff coming to market. Um, and so there's a lot of higher quality stuff that would otherwise have been blocked, but there's also a lot of a long tail of low quality stuff. And then there's our responsibility to make sure that we don't get trapped into silos, because what happens is a lot of the old style kind of propaganda media gets recreated in this more decentralized world. Basically, people either get audience captured so they're just telling their audience what they want to know. Like if they if they challenge their audience and they get pushback from it, uh, they, they that's like a pain point. They say, no, no, I'm just going to feed the audience what they want. Then I, I know what my audience wants, and they're going to. So right. that that's one method. The other one is obviously like, you know, donor capture or or advertiser capture, where you know they have to kind of parrot a financing source to their people and that they always have to take a side and they, they become more like actors in a similar way that that state you know kind of state media or corporate media in many ways they're acting right and so you, yeah. you can see unfortunately see the same thing emerge in some of these peer-to-peer communication channels um, and so I think that partially that's a transition phase that we, we over time years and generations of this we get better at filtering hopefully uh, and that at, hopefully that the markets kind of take care of themselves. I think that the market analogy is a good one because basically it's a market for information. And if people uh, are always kind of on the same line, whether it's right or wrong, uh, eventually that should filter itself out and that there become trusted sources that are more reliably useful and pieces of information. So it's more, it's, it's trust in a sense, but it's more decentralized trust. It's, it's basically trying to filter out signal from the noise and, you know, in order for a society to get through this, it's just we have to have more self-reflection, more seeking out alternative views, uh, which is hard because when you go through these big debt cycles and big macro cycles, they tend to be very polarized environments. You know, both of us are familiar with the fourth turning. I think that's what yeah. we're going through. And and so one of the dangers in a fourth turning is that everybody's polarized and now they're, they're polarized in their own bubbles. And then they don't even know what's with AI or with kind of state propaganda, yeah. you don't even know what's true. Like Russia, Russia can go and say, okay, here's this like woke group and here's this like 
patriot group and they can make these little fake groups that are arguing with each other but they're both not real they're both just an illusion they're, they're purposely for destabilization and the united states can go do the same thing to russia or do the same thing to another country where we kind of stir up you know social uh things like uh kind of real sticking points that are there but then you just add fuel to the fire and it, it's there's really old, the only way to handle it is for people to to be aware of that and then try to cross silo and and, and start pro, more proactively filtering for truth i think i want to dig into that but before it sort of seems as you're talking about it and i was listening it sort of seems like it's a problem that we have in this current system but in a new system we wouldn't have that same problem and what do i mean by that you know jeff booth always talks about you know we're it's hard to see the new system when we're an existing system and so we're in this existing system today where we have massive government central massive central planning um Something that I th I've thought about, uh, again, if technology always changes the way that we organize, um, one of technology is both, it, it can be centralizing, it can be decentralizing. So you could argue the stirrup allowed for the feudal system to grow, right? And I could do that. And then you had a gunpowder revolution and now that sort of decentralized the government. Um, the industrial revolution brought us back into cities and it got mass manufacturing. You had Henry Ford created the assembly line, right? So we had these mass corporations. You had uh, mass manufacturing. In order to manage the masses, you had smart people and dumber people work evenly on an assembly line. So then we had to manage them like cogs in a wheel, so to speak. So we got created a new management structure. And then we sort of had this new government structure to manage that. But we're not in that world anymore. That was like the industrial age. And so now we're in like this information world. And so we're within this big government structure and this fiat money system that we have like these endless wars and um, you know, a lot of what we're seeing. So you say like uh, rally the Russians uh, against the Ukrainians or against the U S and so using these deep fakes to get people on team USA or team Russia. But that's a symptom of the world we're in where we have these big nations on this fiat money system that want to go to war and potentially maybe in a new structure on a sound money system like a Bitcoin standard, where we don't have these big governments going to endless war all the time, maybe them creating these deep fakes to get me on Team USA and someone else on Team Russia, maybe that's not even a problem anymore. I think, well, first of all, I think that'd be a, that's a while away. Uh, you know, that we have to go through a, a period to get to that future. Uh, two is that I think that even in that world, you, you still have to navigate the issue. It's just different issues. So instead of country to country, it can be more like um, tribe to tribe or tribe to tribe or cor cor corporate to corporate, like corporate disinformation, you know, kind of like a, uh, that, you know, like a dystopian tech novel where you have like just kind of corporations that are just kind of cynically doing whatever they're going to do. That, yeah. that, that becomes more of the risk in that world. So I think that that's something that's always with us that we always have to be aware of. And it the just problem's still there, just at a different level. Yeah, yeah, different level. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow the seven right now. 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. So then the answer to that, then you had said in your tweet is we need a more intelligent society. Uh, one of my old favorite punk rock bands, No Effects, they have a song that's like, uh, what's the point of democracy when ignorance is celebrated, right? And so like, we need people to be smarter. Otherwise, this sort of a information society. So if we've, if we've left the industrial age, and we're now in this information age, um, then we need people to be smarter to decipher this information. Yeah, and I think I mean, obviously, it's it's something that it's like every generation wants the next generation. They always complain about the next generation. Uh, it's like a classic thing throughout history. And I think part of the fourth turning concept is that society kind of goes through these trends for multiple decades, and then some sort of crisis happens or some sort of pushback happens, and you go in another direction. Um, so I, I think we're seeing you know we're seeing early signs. People are questioning the nutrition advice they've been given. They're questioning the medical advice they're given. They're, they're questioning the, the military-industrial complex. They're, they're questioning the money system, right? And so. And do you think that's because of the rise of decentralized information? I do. I, yeah, because yeah. you. Yeah, so before, you know, you'd have to like advertise your little group in like a magazine and by mail, and like you know, it, it's like a very small niche thing. Yeah. Uh, and now it's people people with with divergent views can find each other. And then even travel for like conferences. You know, they can go to conferences yeah. together and meet each other in person. In addition to being online, uh, and and that's that's a, that's one of the things. That's why I call this a, a, a very positive thing. It, yeah. So it, there's a lot of good that comes from it. And so just but like most new technologies, you you have to just manage the downsides. Like you know, video games yeah. are great, but if you get kind of just always playing video games, or if you know computers are great, but if you're on the computer all the time and you're straining your eyes and your back. You know, there's downside to this powerful technology, and I think the same is generally true for this, where there's so much power unlocked by decentralized media in all of its forms, but we do have to adjust to that and be able to filter out some of the downsides that come yeah. with any, any new technology. So I want to ask you how you do that because you're such a uh, – I love the way you think. So I want to get into that. But before we do, um, the other thing, though, that we have – and so we can look back to you know the Protestant Reformation as a really good sort of model for that where you had sort of this uh, this church and state combined that had to keep this narrative. But, but previously we had a new technology called the printing press that decentralized information. And it created heresy and heretics. And they would – you know anyone who would read the Bible and speak out against the church was put to death, et cetera. Didn't matter because the information was out there. And today, something similar, right? So now, instead of having Walter Cronkite tell us what to eat, instead of the FDA telling us what to eat, now we have 
independent people saying, oh, seed oils is bad and you should try a carnivore diet or whatever it may be. And now we're starting to see sort of like this um, ideas being discussed and we're starting to see which ones work. We can try different things for ourselves as opposed to just getting this one narrative. However, the problem seems to be if we sort of break things down to a first principles level, in order for a central power to stay in power, they have to be able to control the narrative somewhat. And it seems like when you look, you know, study the history of empires or democracies, they tend towards, and maybe some of this fourth turning, but they tend towards corruption. And as they get more corrupt, uh, the, uh, and especially as the people see this more, they get more unhappy. And so the government has to control this narrative. And so it seems like we're in this collision course where if central powers want to stay in power, they have to control the narrative. But we have technology over here that's taking away their ability to control the narrative. And so like we're heading on this collision course that I think we're already starting to see now We've seen this, uh, yes, in the United States, 1917, the, we saw the Sedition Act, we saw the Smith Act, uh, we saw you know, different things like that where they've regulated speech uh, based off of wartime. But do you see this collision course, I guess? And I think you maybe uh, alluded to this earlier, we're going to have to fight for this because, because of these two uh, imposable forces that are coming together, the government needing to control the narrative, but at the same time, technology taking away their ability to do so? Absolutely. And I think that's happening globally. Um, you know, some countries more than others, but I think in the United States, in Europe, uh, this already happens a lot in developing countries. Um, you know, throughout the world, um, I, I think we're seeing increasing restrictions on, you know, basically they want to control the financial system. They don't want to let these new technologies kind of break out of the silo. Um, so they're trying to push back there. Um, and I think we're going to see more control. You know, we're, we're already seeing a lot of control over social media, for example. You know, certain things on YouTube have a tough time staying up uh, yeah. rather than letting the, the audience, you know, if they don't like it, they can just not look at it. Um, and instead, they either put weird disclaimers on them and point them to some kind of old school like authority that was like has a bad track record anyway, or they take it down outright. Um and and so I think that that's that's an ongoing challenge that's going to exist. Um, and it's a lot of it comes down to making sure people are aware of that narrative war. And for me, um, the biggest one I like to focus on is that financial freedom aspect uh, because social media is already largely won. Uh, there's <clears throat> there's various kind of attempts at clawing some of that back. Um, but I also like there's new technologies like Noster, for example, that make even more decentralized social media. So you, instead of just relying on these centralized silos of media, um, there's various things you can go to if you're deplatformed, if you don't want, um, you know, kind of various either corporations or governments kind of enticing corporations to censor them. Um, so one is that I, I like the more decentralized social media model. And then two when it comes to the transfer of value, that's the one that's newer. That's kind of like mm -hmm. a, say, a decade or more behind the, the you know, the decentralization of information. Uh, and that one's still in its earlier stage. It's still a little bit more easily disruptable. Um, and so that's that's the one I tried to protect a little bit more with mm -hmm. my words, my writing, my actions, um, trying to uh, do my best to make sure the public's aware of that. And I think that the good news is that with with this decentralized media and because the status quo is kind of having struggling under its own weight, this is doable. I mean, for example, the other day I ratioed Bloomberg 
like 7,000 likes to like 100 likes. It was like an insane yeah. ratio. Wow. Um, because it was just a really bad article. And I actually like most Bloomberg articles, but this particular one, um, I was like, it was like basically about how like, it was it was kind of a negative article about, about about Bitcoin transactions from someone who likely never sent a Bitcoin transaction based on what he wrote, and right. was like, if you're sending a Bitcoin transaction, you're probably doing something illegal. And I was like, is it? It feels like it was written in like Silk Road days. Like it feels so out of date. And so I I called them out on it, and there was a huge reaction because, you know, in these types of environments, when there, there's just more pushback against kind of BS in the media or in in you know, what we see in like political theater. But that's exactly the point is like good ideas winning in open and uh, open debate. So they put their narrative out, you put their narrative out, and then the audience, the people sort of chimed in, you got 7,000 likes, they got 100. And so then those good ideas were challenged and people were able to kind of choose. So, you know, I look at censorship uh, and really, like I said, really the central powers needing to hang on to power. And so then in order to do that, they have to censor. So one, censor our speech, right, which also censors what we can read and our ideas, our thoughts, but also our money to your to your point that you're talking about the financial piece and so what we've seen for example just recently with like russell brand um they went after his ability to earn money they wanted to take his monetization off of his youtube channel i'm sure you saw the letter that the uk parliament i think wrote to uh parlor saying hey we're troubled that he can still make money like what uh you have like alex jones he was probably the first person that was deplatformed right like wiped off the face of the earth but he's probably bigger today than ever still on the internet, but it's the money that they go after. And so we have these open monetary networks. The internet is somewhat decentralized already. And now like to your point, Noster, which I'll just say, uh, I've been still locked out of my Twitter account for almost three months now. It's for devastating. <laughs> well, going on three months, uh, wow. Elon, if you're listening, please turn me back on. Uh, George Gammon's also locked out of his account the same thing. And both of us are the same problem. They reset our 2FA and we just, I filled out like 20 support requests. Just reset my 2FA. And, and, the, and the rub is they're still charging me monthly for my, my blue subscription. <sighs> anyway, uh, maybe I should have just started posting on, on uh, Noster. Uh, but anyway, um, so we have these uh, decentralized platforms. And really now this money piece is this, is this next piece. So they need to censor that. They need to control that, if you will, not just the speech, but our, our money, our value transfer as well. This is sort of what we've seen throughout history, creative destruction, right? The, the Luddites, they went and destroyed the looms. They, they didn't like the looms, putting them out of jobs, right? The, the candle makers didn't like electricity. The, the buggy makers didn't like the cars. But this is different. Uh, you know, the, the, the movie companies and the movie industry and the music industry didn't like streaming. Um, but maybe this is different because it's government. But it seems to me that when the technology is so much better, when it's a hundred times, when it's a thousand times better, it just wins out. It's a rough transition, but at the end, it just wins out. Would you agree? I agree. Um, this is the hardest battle. Um, you know, when you when you it's, go, it's at, the final boss. It's, it's the big the, boss. Yeah, this right? is the final boss. Like uh, you know, when you we, we kind of went through gatekeeper after gatekeeper after gatekeeper, and the biggest one left is the state and their money. Um, and and so that like that's not gonna that's not it's not gonna be without but, a fight. But it's but it's broken and it has to be fixed. So I agree, <laughs> I agree, and I think and, and it's also different countries have different levels of pushback. And so for example, there's there's nothing that Argentina can do about the fact that stable coins and Bitcoin keep penetrating into their country, right? Because there's nothing they can do about it. They can they've already tried to cut off the bank and the fintech uh, friction points going in there. 
but the more ubiquitous and widely known and liquid these assets get, uh, it's it's just you're you're trying to like build a sand wall against the rising tide. It's just it's just mm-hmm. gonna you can hold it back, you can hold it back, but you're you're fighting um, something that's almost inevitable. Now, obviously, entities like United States and China and the European Union have more ammo uh, mm-hmm. to to go at this, and so that's that's more of a longer term battle, I think. Um, so I don't think that people should just assume that they win, because with these things, I mean, things can get set back a generation. Right. So yeah. if you want like yourself and your kids to enjoy that, you know, it's it's like, you know, you don't want to you don't want to take it for granted and have the whole thing happen 50 years late. Um, yeah. and, and that's my fear. That's yeah, that's the risk. And so this this technology exists now, even if it's somehow killed, it, it can reform itself. Um, but it's, you know, ideally you would want it to win on the first try. Uh, you don't want to mm-hmm. have to have to go into the dark ages for a period of time and then come back. Um, yeah. And and WikiLeaks was a great example. I mean, one of the first use cases of Bitcoin was WikiLeaks was deplatformed monetarily, uh, and they turned to Bitcoin. And now in recent months, we've seen WikiLeaks has put some of the information itself in the Bitcoin blockchain. So in addition to Bitcoin being decentralized money, uh, kind of a lesser use case for it is it's the most decentralized database that we know how to build uh, for small amounts of information. Um, and so important documents or information can be put in there. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're true, but it means that they've not been changed since they're put in. And so, you know, if someone wants to put in the book 1984 or Animal Farm or, you know, Fahrenheit or the Bible or the Bible or yeah. uh, these WikiLeaks cables, you know, whatever the case yeah. may be, you can put in information that you, you want to exist in the future and say, OK, well, regardless, of whatever happens, as long as this decentralized network, which is you know stored in tens of thousands of nodes, it's something that is provably unchanged since that was put in, uh, and right. so that's that's one of the non-monetary use cases uh, for it. Uh, but you know the money one's the bigger one overall, but I think that second mm-hmm. one shouldn't be overlooked. Yeah, and I also like you know sort of like what uh, Jack has done with uh, what Blue Sky and using the Bitcoin blockchain to uh, hash the DIDs in there, so a decentralized identifier. And so you know potentially in a world, hopefully not too far away, instead of having Facebook and Google have our SSO, our login IDs, we could own our IDs. Um, I think it's pretty cool. Uh, maybe it's a Noster using a private key. We don't know how that will win out. But as of right now, those DIDs, I guess, are recognized by the World Wide Web Consortium or whatever it is. But it's used, it's, it's being hashed in the Bitcoin blockchain. So we sort of have the Bitcoin network, and then we have the Bitcoin as an asset. So there's sort of like two things going on, I guess. Is that sort of how you see it? Yeah. I, I, yeah. And, and, you know, we'll see what layers win out. Um, I, I think Noster has a little bit more organic. It's a little bit kind of simpler. You know, like basically sometimes simple protocols uh, just kind of went out and and Jack himself spends quite a bit of time on Noster. Um, uh, But, you know, we'll see it. And there doesn't necessarily have to be one. You can have you can have different layers for different purposes or different use cases or just different choices. Uh, And they make they make use of Bitcoin in their own ways. Uh, And so I think that these technologies, um, as long as there's a spark alive somewhere in the world, you know, some, some jurisdictions will push back on it. Other jurisdictions will open up to it and say, yeah. if you want to build this stuff, come to us. Um, and as long as there are people advancing this, which there currently are, um, I think both information and money are on track to get more and more decentralized. 
Yeah. And that's that game theory piece. Uh, I read this book. You might have heard it before. It's um, The Revolt of the Public. It was written by uh, Martin Gurry. He's a CIA analyst. And he talks about how um, basically the Internet has uh, given us so much information that uh, the center, the central planning, the center could never hold because the public is, is too broad. But anyway, he, he talks about how this Internet is and he kind of goes through history and talks about how um, in the Arab Spring, how Facebook was used to kind of overthrow the government in Egypt. And, and he talks about Israel, et cetera. But the point that he makes is that the governments are sort of caught between this rock and a hard place where if they allow this freedom of like the internet, this freedom of ideas and communication, if they allow it, their country is going to flourish. It's going to create all these new jobs and businesses and people will be smart, et cetera. But uh, then they'll probably lose power. Uh, they could choose to not allow it, but then they hold themselves back in the dark ages. And so they kind of have this, like, they're trying to kind of ride this line. You can be North Korea and, like, censor everything, but then you're North Korea, right? Uh, so that's where this kind of uh, game theory plays out, hopefully in a shorter period of time and not a longer period of time. But to your point about, you know, hopefully this doesn't leapfrog a, a decade or a generation, you know, it scares me seeing these 70, 80-year-olds in office making laws against things that they just don't understand. I mean, the average age of a Fortune 500 CEO is in their 50s, like 55, um, certainly not 80 and certainly not passing laws to your point that could impact generations. Um, I know we're kind of start, starting to run down on time here. So I want to get to uh, one last thing I want to ask you about, because like I said a couple times in this interview, like the way that you think and process information is amazing. Um, I haven't gotten through this whole book yet. I have to, uh, I have to just uh, say that, but uh, it's a great book. Everyone should check out this book. I'm also a paid subscriber to your newsletter. It's amazing. Uh, we'll link to that in the notes down below. But like the way that you process information uh, is very analytical, I guess. Maybe it's your engineering background. So I, you put out a tweet talking about like deciphering information, and you were talking about that, and it's something that I've kind of said as well, but it's that... In the past, maybe the problem was getting information, and today we have too much. You said uh, we have too much info. What can we filter out? On social media, we resort to patterns, but patterns breed tribalism. It takes effort, extra effort to have a global view and ask how can people of all types flourish. So in this world that you framed up for us in this tweet talks about where we have too much information, what, what do you do? What are practical steps that you do or that other people could do to sort of decipher this and, and find some truth there? I think one step is to be aware of the tribes that exist or this or the echo chambers that naturally uh, form. Um, they used to be formed largely due to geography, and now they you know, now it's more digital, right? So it's not a physical tribe; it's a digital tribe. And so the one is to say, okay, which echo chambers are forming? Which ones am I maybe finding myself in? So things start seeming increasingly obvious because all the people I follow are kind of saying the same thing. And then they're, you know, and, I, and I'm attracting followers that, that think that too, and we're kind of feeding on each other. How can we challenge ourselves? So you, you identify what tribes you might be in, identify the other tribes that exist, and then say, okay, they're, they're, the other tribes are not all dummies. They have, they have smart people in there too, at least most. I mean, mm -hmm. some, some, you know, some ideas are just really bad, but like you, most other tribes, there's, this is a complex world. So you say, okay, what can I identify some of the most high signal intelligent people from those other tribes and make sure I'm aware of what they're saying, what their argument are? Can I, can I recite their argument back to them in a way that they would be pleased with, even if I disagree with it? It's, it's the process of steel manning an, an argument. So instead of straw manning an argument by saying this other tribe thinks this and it's like you know, you're mischaracterizing their view, you're giving a simplistic view, you're saying, okay, here is this person I disagree with 
they're saying this argument, and if anything, you're trying to make their argument sound even better. And then you're saying, okay, here's why I disagree with it. So I, I think basically that that intentionality of purposely keeping your finger on the pulse of multiple different silos, echo chambers, tribes, whatever you want to call them, uh, the more at least the more intelligent side of each of them, because um, each one's going to have a spectrum of thought leaders versus just pure tribalists. So you, you, you identify the high signal people and that, that just gives you a more global perspective. It helps you it helps you see areas where you might be wrong or where you might be maybe you're right, but you you realize that you're in a smaller minority than you think. Uh, and then therefore you have to adjust probable outcomes for certain things, mm -hmm. even if even if you would prefer your outcome. Uh, there's multiple kind of reasons why that ends up being useful. In addition, it helps you if you wanted to have your ideas spread to them, the more effective you're going to be is if you understand their ideas more thoroughly. If you can recite their ideas back to them in a way that they that they actually can tell that you actually understand what they're thinking, and then you say, well, here's why I disagree, uh, you can make inroads into there in, in a way that most people can't. And so, for, open, honest dialogue. It works exactly. And so, for yeah. both, for both challenging your own ideas and making sure you're in the right echo chambers, or just ideally not in an echo chamber, but basically both stress testing yourself and figuring out how to to spread your ideas to others, it, it really takes that intentionality, to that open mindedness and that intentionality to go out and say, look, there are people that are smart, but they disagree with me. And I want to make sure I know what they're saying and what they're thinking and what they're focused on so that I don't get too caught up in a, in a small thing that I assume is bigger than it really is. Mm -hmm. So then, one, you need to find the signal, the, the highest signal people you can follow, but making sure you're following people on both sides of the aisle. So you're not just getting feedback from your own echo chamber. You're also getting um, the opposite side of the argument as well, trying to take time to understand the argument and then engage in honest dialogue so that you can understand that better. I mean, that's sort of like the high level of it. Yeah, and approach, and a lot of times approach it like a questioner. So don't approach it like you're already 100% correct because neither of us, none of us are going to be 100% correct in everything. So approach yeah. it as though like, okay, you've thought certain, certain things out. There could be areas that you've thought about less than other areas and that you could learn something from a person you otherwise disagree with just as you would hope that they would learn something from you. Uh, and so it's not just seeking out to challenge them, uh, but it's seeking out to understand them more, to fully stress test your own ideas. And like, for example, with Broken Money, the book, you know, um, I, I purposely wrote it in such a way to try to reach a pretty wide audience to say, okay, if, you're, if you don't care at all about Bitcoin, it's like, let's explore the history of money and some of these future technologies for where we're going. Uh, and then if you are into Bitcoin, it basically says, okay, here's some ideas that you might not have explored as thoroughly from other Bitcoin books. And then therefore you might be caught off guard by certain arguments that they can make. Um, so it kind of like seeks out intelligent people from multiple camps as it explores the history of money. And I, I just think basically that kind of technique applied to multiple different subjects is important. And especially when we're, you know, we... Sovereign debt crisis can lead to war, and war can lead to sovereign debt crisis. These things tend to feed on each other. And so in this world, <clears throat> and then especially when we add things like AI and purposeful misinformation, either from state actors or corporate actors or tribes or whatever the case is, it just takes a lot of responsibility. It's really on us how well we get through this era. You know, yeah. it's like it comes down to individual people making better decisions 
why do some cultures flourish and others fail? It's because a critical mass of the people kind of just cut through the noise and say, look, these are the virtues I'm going to stick with. Uh, these are, I'm going to be educated. Uh, I'm going to seek out multiple views since I can filter the right ones. I'm going to try to empathize with people I disagree with and say, what would, what would the smartest version of this alternative argument look like? And what, what does my argument look like to them? Right. So what, what, what is the smart version of my argument sound like to someone who disagrees with it? What, what mm -hmm. point do they specifically think I'm not thinking through? Because yeah. there's there, there's a lot of problems in the world. There's a lot of emotions. Uh, it comes down to p political views, religious views, uh, control versus subjects. There, there's so many vectors here, and the stakes are pretty high. And, and yeah. I think we just all have to challenge ourselves. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn criminal trials for one of those candidates, young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment with a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Yeah, I love that. I, I think of it, uh, I know you're into martial arts and you do jujitsu. I think about it like verbal sparring. Like, uh, I love to just talk to someone with the opposing views. And if we can have a good dialogue, it's kind of fun. Just like I would go uh, spar against an opponent and we get to try each other's technique at, against each other. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I love sitting down with Peter McCormick. Uh, we see, we're, we're kind of sitting on opposite sides, but he, we can have a good, honest dialogue about it. I agree. Uh, my show producer, Q, uh, he's also on a different political ideology than I am a little bit for the most part. And, but we have good, honest dialogue and it helps both of us to kind of explore these ideas if, if we can talk about it. Uh, it's, it's when they, uh, throw out the, the nuclear bomb, uh, arguments that it kind of goes sideways, but, um, I have time for maybe one more question. And so you'd mentioned, um, the Bitcoin piece. And so I just want to, uh, maybe ask one more question there. Um, a lot of people are starting to kind of hang their hopes on this, uh, Bitcoin ETF being this like big catalyst that we need. I have this view that uh, we talk about, you know, Bitcoin is, is money for your enemies, so to speak, right? So like Bitcoin is made uh, for peer-to-peer -peer transactions. So it's sort of like anti-establishment. You know, we don't need gatekeepers. Uh, we don't need that anymore. Um, but a lot of times people say in the United States don't really understand why we need that because our money works pretty good. In third world countries, they do understand it, especially when their money is really, really bad, to your point. Do you think that... Um, Wall Street could be the catalyst that gets it going, or 
I'm starting to think that maybe what we really need is a more adversarial lens against Bitcoin for it to prove its real value and worth, um, to prove its utility. So like in North Korea or in Afghanistan, you could understand why you need a money that moves peer to peer and is not censored. But maybe in the U.S. we don't. So what do you think it could be both or do you think one is better catalyst than the other? I think we're going to get both together because I think Wall Street is likely going to help in price, which is good for the network. Uh, but meanwhile, the government, through FinCEN and various Patriot Act um, kind of references, are going to really go after the privacy side uh, and the self-custodial side, potentially. Um, and so I think that there's there's two fronts, you know, kind of on this war here. Um, I, I think it's inevitable that but, that... but that's also a U.S.-centric view, right? So what about globally? Well, so I, what I was going to get to is that, ironically... The reason it's so interlinked, right? So as as an asset monetizes, it, it achieves certain liquidity. Like for example, when it traded a few thousand dollars a day, someone couldn't just ape into it with a million dollars. When it trades a few million dollars a day, someone couldn't just ape into it with a billion dollars. When it trades a few billion dollars a day, there's even bigger pools of capital that still have they can move the price if, if they get too bullish or bearish in a day. Uh, the larger and more widespread and more kind of ubiquitous it is, the more types of pools of capital that own non-zero amounts of it, the bigger and more liquid it gets, the harder it becomes for any one entity to move it. Uh, I think that's healthy for the network. If you go to, uh, and this is where I tie, it ties in the rest of the world, if you go to someone in Argentina and you say, why aren't you like all in Bitcoin? They're like, well, it's, it's super volatile. I, you know, I like Bitcoin, but I, I have to hold mostly stable coins because I have to know what my value is going to be worth in two months, right? Bitcoin I can hold for five years, but I have to I have to have something more stable in the shorter term. But Bitcoin only achieves that lower volatility if it becomes more big, ubiquitous, liquid. Uh, and there's also just it's inevitability. Basically if you hit higher levels of monetization, eventually larger pools of capital want to join. Maybe a central bank somewhere adds it to their balance sheet. Maybe BlackRock apes into it, right? There's certain entities that start going after it. And not only do they become relevant for their own countries, like so for example, it is good for people in their various 401ks if they can have a non-zero Bitcoin position in there, uh, you know, for their own kind of protection. If we, if some of the things we talked about play out, like a stagflationary stock market and a housing market and a bond market, um, you know, if they have a non-zero amount of Bitcoin in their 401k, that's um, one, and if, if that capital is kind of stuck there anyway, and if they're, you know, age 60 and maybe they don't want to get a cold card, um, you know, and, and there are 60-year-olds that love cold cards, but maybe not everyone. Uh, that's an access point for them. But then in addition, even if Americans then are not using Bitcoin in the way that we would maybe prefer they would use it, like I recommend self-custody, I recommend Swan or, or any of the other um, kind of Bitcoin-focused on-ramps. Um, but for people that are not using it that way, they still strengthen the network for people in other countries. If Bitcoin is 5x bigger or 10x bigger, and it's somewhat less volatile, still going to be volatile for a while until it's like ubiquitous. But if it's less volatile and it's more known and it's had another cycle of growth, uh, that can bring it to more awareness for people in all these other countries uh, that can use it in hopefully the more cypherpunk way. Um, 
and that's how I view it. So, so then the the U.S. centric sort of financialization of Bitcoin is maybe a shorter term catalyst in a sense where it brings more money to it, which then makes the market cap bigger, which then makes it more stable. Um, and then the other nations might recognize that it's more stable and they could adopt it better. So, you think the sort of I guess money argument is a better catalyst in the near term than the um, sort of adversarial lens, um, even though we're seeing you know because I guess maybe those transactions in other countries where the demand is higher from the adversarial lens, uh, the transaction volumes are too low, so it doesn't really bring the stabilization that's needed to it. Yeah, and I think um, the way I would describe it is that there's just kind of some degree of inevitability to it, um, but that it, I view it both, it's adversarial at the same time as it's advantageous, because on one hand, a, a, like America as a government does kind of want to walled garden this thing, and so, for example, I don't view the Bitcoin ETF as the best way to hold it. Um, but I do think that, ironically, that adds stability to the market. It's just another – it's not like a unique level of stability. It's just another level of stability. If, if Japan's central right. bank decides to have a 5% Bitcoin position, that's another – you know, it's a completely different example. There are all yeah. these big pools of capital that for a while Bitcoin's been too small for them or un unclear if it's going to work out, and it reaches a certain critical mass – Though you know sovereign wealth funds, central banks, and the BlackRock, you know just large pools of capital, suddenly get interested in having it as a reserve or as a product, uh, and maybe it's not great, but that's just it's it's part of a monetization of an asset. Um, uh, but I you know I proactively then go out and invest in say privacy technologies or self custodial technologies. Uh, focusing more on these other countries uh, or other markets or, you know, ways that I think is, is preferable to hold Bitcoin. And I think that it has been stress tested. Like, for example, yeah. during the Canadian trucker protest, when they tried to then, you know, blacklist Bitcoin address to go after them, that was kind of a stress test to say, OK, what, what could we have done better next time? Uh, Mount Gox was a stress test. It, it helped us bring, you know, like hardware wallets and, and things like that. Every every time there's like, you know, when China banned Bitcoin mining, you know, they had multiple failed bans and one of them finally kind of stuck. And that actually helped decentralize mining a little bit more than it already was. And some mining reemerged in China anyway. So Bitcoin does go through these challenges over time. So far, it's been successful at, at being anti-fragile when it faces them. And I think this is yet another one. This one comes with both pros and cons. It's good for price and liquidity, which can be good for eventually for volatility. Um, but it also comes with, you know, a lot of people just kind of get trapped in walled gardens. Um, and I think that this is just, it's another phase that Bitcoin was destined to go through should it ever reach this level, which is what it reached now. And to be clear, I don't think that Bitcoin needs a spot ETF. And I think that if a spot ETF never comes, I still think there's going to be a Bitcoin bull cycle. I think it's going to be heavily tied to global liquidity uh, and it's tied to like the hodler wave. So basically during bear markets, the strong hands keep accumulating coins and then you get a halving and then just, you know, so the supply side gets very tight. So it only takes a tiny spark of new demand to really kind of lift the price neck. So I think that regardless of whether a spot Bitcoin ETF comes, I think we're going to eventually have another cycle. The spot ETF can just potentially accelerate or magnify that cycle. Uh, and that has some pros and cons, but I think it's mostly pros in the sense that one, it's inevitable, and two, any higher level of li liquidity and size is is good for the overall network, especially for people that are ironically not in those walled gardens um, that are still benefiting from the stability and liquidity and market size uh, and price action that those walled gardens are giving the whole network. Yeah. 
Wow, uh, there's a there's there's a lot there, but we'll end it we'll end it with that. I know we've gone a long time. Um, I, it was pretty interesting to see uh, Larry Fink come out and say that people are using it to fly to safety. So uh, we're starting to see that shift for sure. Um, for everyone listening, you talked about uh, investing into some of these privacy companies and stuff. I know you're uh, you're uh, with Ego Death Capital, which is investing in that. I, of course, have the Bitcoin Opportunity Fund. We're investing into that. So we're both uh, trying to build the world that we want uh, uh, in a way. Um, for everyone listening, check out uh, Broken Money. We'll make sure we link to that in the show notes down below. And Lynn Alden, I subscribed to her newsletter. We'll link to that down below as well. Um, anything else that you want to let people know about? Uh, no, that's it. Check out Broken Money. And uh, hopefully we can do our little parts to um, kind of push back on the financial oppression and the misinformation that's out there and just kind of help shape the world in some tiny way, uh, hopefully in a better direction. All right. Thanks, Lynn. Appreciate it. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.